0: 1st Peter chapter 3. Good morning, good to see everybody. We still have a lot of people gone on vacation, and we've got a group that's in the Dominican Republic. Um, They left yesterday, I think off and on all through the day, and they'll be coming back Friday, and so if you would, continue to be praying for them. You know, the Bible is just the easiest thing to understand. Don't you find that every time you read it? It's just so easy to totally understand everything. You got it right? Mark Donahoe, right? Right? Yeah, it's just easy. Well, for the most f- for the most part, of most of the stuff that you read in Scripture is pretty understandable, but there are times, as we do here at the church, we walk verse by verse through the scripture, and it forces you sometimes to come some of those passages where you just kind of put your finger to your head and go, okay, what is what does this mean? And we're gonna look at one of those today, and it's an illustration from Peter. And so we are in 1 Peter chapter 3. We've been walking through this first letter um, from Peter. And in the theme of chapter 3 is he's been affirming over and over that the model of suffering and the model of great glory that comes from suffering is the life of Jesus. Nobody in the history of the world did more good in his life than Jesus. Well, how did that turn out for him? What it turned out for him is they put him on a cross because the world didn't get it. The religious leaders did not get him. And so His goodness, even though everything He did was God-honoring and pure and perfect, it led to suffering on the cross. And yet, that suffering led to the greatest victory that has ever been. Death in the grave has been defeated. There is the hope of heaven by having faith in what He has done for us. And so that is the theme of chapter 3. Peter is going to let me just stop for a second and kind of back up before I say that. If you read Paul, the Apostle Paul, Paul is very ordered in the way that he writes things. He draws his illustrations and things very, very orderly. Peter, in his epistle here, in the second as well, is he will lay forth these great doctrinal truths, and then he kind of throws in a unique illustration about it that makes you go, okay, what's your point? And for centuries and actually for about 1,900 years, the texts we're going to look at today as well as next week have been some of the most difficult to understand. But we will, you will see today, I think, you know, if you just glance at them, it's harder to understand. But if we really look at it and you do cross-references and see what the Scripture has for us, you can understand it. So today will be kind of interesting. We're going to talk about demons today. Uh, we're going to talk about Christ's proclamation in regard to what He writes here in First. Uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 13. I want to kind of put everything together um, because this whole section is, is important to see. And so we're going to start in verse 13. We're going to go all the way to verse 22. But the section we're going to look at today is 19 and verse 20. All right, let's look at verse 13, first Peter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And then he says, And having a good conscience so that, here's a fact that's going to come, when you are slandered for your faith, is he talking about, those who revile your good character in Christ, they may be put to shame. And then he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then we got to the text last week in verse 18. We spent all of our time last week in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. And this has been, we're going to talk about this next week, Uh, we won't even touch on it today, but... He writes, baptism, which corresponds. Now look up here just for a moment, because you're going to read this and go, wait, that doesn't jive with what you teach us all the time. So he says, baptism, which corresponds. In other words, he's saying this. This is another illustration that this word corresponds is likeness. It's similar to this. It doesn't mean that baptism brings salvation. So he uses this word, and we'll fully kind of walk our way through it next week. Baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but rather as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him so here is the main theme that Peter's been talking about here let me just repeat it one more time the ultimate good is Jesus the ultimate picture of suffering and how to handle suffering is Jesus. The ultimate victory that comes from suffering is the picture of Jesus. Peter's heart is look to Jesus in the good days, look to Jesus in the difficult days. He is the model, He is the author and perfecter of our faith. No one is to be looked at more than Jesus. Can we learn from others? Yes. Learn from others who have great faith in God, but look to Jesus more than anybody else. He is the model of extreme good who went through suffering and then eventually received incredible great glory. So Peter today is using an illustration for us to kind of help model this. He's going to use the demonic world, some spirits in prison, and what happened in regard to Christ and then he also is going to use an example from Noah, and we will look mainly at the demonic and what took place there, and we will touch on uh, Noah, but we will deal with Noah pretty, pretty in depth next week. But I want to remind us, in case you weren't here last week, last week, are y'all ready for two sermons? Oh, well, wow, that wasn't a very good. Y'all ready for two sermons? Okay, all right. I'm going to give you a brief summary of last week, because if you missed it, You need to go online. We've got our LifePoint app now where you can listen to the sermon on your phone. You can go to the website and you can listen to it. I want to remind us of what we looked at last week in verse 18. And here's what Peter wrote For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in his flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And we talked last week about some really significant things. This victory of Christ that has come for us, come to us. And the first thing we looked at last week was this, is that Christ died once for sins. In the Old Testament, millions and millions and millions and millions of animals were slain to temporarily deal with, as a sacrifice, the sin of mankind. But none of those animals, a single one of them, or the combination of all of them, could ever add up to the forgiveness of our sin that separates us from God. So when Christ came, He became the only satisfying sacrifice that pleased the Father that, where He bore our sin so that our sin could be forgiven. So He is the ultimate example, the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And it was a once and for all thing. And we've talked about before, in the Catholic Mass, there is a repeating of the crucifixion of Jesus, the idea of this needs to be continually done. And it does not need to be done. The Scripture affirms over and over, this was a once for all event that doesn't need to be redone. What it needs to be done is this, and it's retold. And I'm telling it again today in this room. I want to remind you and I today that Jesus is never going to be crucified again. He doesn't need to be crucified through something I try to do. I don't have any kind of power like that. This was a once and for all event. And this once and for all event happened because he became the sin bearer. He bore our sin. 1 Peter 2.24 For he himself bore our sins in his Body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So He bore our sin. He was the only one that could satisfy this. And the way that He did it was is it was a substitutionary death. He stood in our place. So when He hung on the cross, this is where we deserve to go. We deserve to die on the cross. But Jesus instead said, no, I will take their place. He becomes... The substitution for us. In other words, it's, a, it's also called a vicarious death. It is something done on behalf of somebody else. So when he hung on the cross, he took the place that was rightfully ours. He bore in his body our sin, and it became the substitutionary death. And this death, listen to me, is so amazing that 1 Peter 1.12 tells us this, that when angels contemplate this, And they look at the beauty of salvation. In the Greek it says that the angels long to look. It literally means they lean down, they peer down, and they look and they examine it. And they don't get it because they haven't experienced salvation. There's such a beauty to grace. There's such a power and magnificent thing that happens when we were rescued from our sin that the cross becomes the wonder of angels and the scorn of demons. They hate what happened there. But there's a beauty that has come through his salvation. So it's the only satisfying sacrifice. He bore our sin in his body. He was the substitutionary death for us. And then Peter last week talked about he is the introducer. In the ancient world, they would have a guy who, whose job was to operate and in, in function within the presence of the king. And he had the power to be able to allow you to come into the king's presence. And if you were to come into the king's presence, he would step in and say, King, Bill Schroeder is now coming in. And I want to introduce to you, he has an auto shop. And and he's a godly man. And he runs his business with integrity. And he would introduce somebody to the king. Jesus now becomes this. This is the word that Peter uses here. He says that he might bring us to God, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Jesus is the only one who can bring us to God. And He brings us to God in this way that He announces through His life that we have been forgiven and He introduces us and provides access for us to come into the presence of God. Just listen to a couple of these verses Romans 5:2. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith. Ephesians 2:18 For through him we have both access in one spirit <clears throat> to the Father. Ephesians 3:12 In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And then last week we closed with this. We talked about he said this, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. So Jesus' body literally died on the cross. No brain waves, no heart pumping, no breathing. His body died, but his spirit did not die. You remember what he said in Luke twenty three forty six? Father, into your hands I do what? I commit my spirit. So when he hung on the cross, his body literally died, but his spirit was alive. And we're going to talk about the significance of that because that's what Peter is going to deal with today. So when I finish this thing, well, it's about... It was about Wednesday um, afternoon, and I realized I had 20 pages of typed out notes, and I thought, man, I haven't even got to verse 21 and 22 yet, and I was going to, probably that's going to be 20 more pages of notes, and so I didn't think y'all wanted 40 pages today, or does anybody want to stay a long time today? I can do it, okay, but anyway, we won't do it. I know, I know y'all have got to go home and eat and stuff like that, so I stopped. We're going to deal with just 19 and the first part of 20, or 19 to 20, and we'll deal with t- 20 and all the way through 22 next week unless it just gets really there's no reason to rush right where are we going we might as well study it and let's just let's just walk through it and make sure that we understand so let me delve into this we're going to have about eventually 13 points from the time we're all through with these. i've already got it all outlined but we're here's the next one i want to talk about the spirit of jesus just for a moment and i've just touched on it when he when he died on the cross his body literally was dead what happens at death is the soul and the body separated. So Jesus died. He's put, his body's put in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He's put in there. He's wrapped in shrouds. There. He's, he's put there. They roll a stone over there. He is literally dead, but his spirit is alive because he is eternally alive. And we're going to talk about, based on what Peter writes here, what Did his spirit do during the weekend of the crucifixion? And we're going to see some pretty incredible things that Peter writes here. Now, he is strongly letting us know that there is a great contrast that Jesus' body died, but his spirit did not die. And so the emphasis now that we're about to look at is on the spirit of Jesus and what he did that I believe during the weekend of the crucifixion in between. The resurrection so what did he do look at verse 19 here's what it says in which verse 18 says okay he says putting put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit verse 19 tells us he went verse 19 he in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison so the next thing i want us to see this morning is i want to talk about a specific place This word he went in the Greek means this, someone who travels, someone who goes from one place to another place. Now watch this. I find this incredibly fascinating, and I think you will too this morning. So Jesus hanging on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It says he breathed this last and he died. Literally, his body is dead. He commits his spirit to the Father. His body is put into a tomb. His spirit is eternally alive. Um, The psalmist wrote it. Peter quotes it on the day of Pentecost. You will not let my soul come into decay. He did not die. His soul is spiritually alive. And Peter writes here, this alive soul of Jesus went somewhere. So we know where he was. He's on the cross. But when he died, his spirit went somewhere. And verse 19 tells us, that he went on a journey, that's the word there, he went from one place to another place, and he goes to some spiritual dimension somewhere where these spirits are, and he goes to that place. And when Christ died, he is separated from his body, his spirit is, as that's what happens in death. And Jesus at that moment on the cross did what he always did. The practice of his life was entrusting himself To the Father. So as He lived and as He died, He continued to entrust Himself to the Father. It is such a model for us. Every moment of our lives, every day, every breath, every situation, we continue to entrust ourselves to the Father. Now, there are many people who believe that when He died on the cross, that in that moment His spirit, His body put into the grave, but His spirit ascended to heaven. And I believe. The New Testament shows us that that's not what happened. Because if you remember, on the morning of the resurrection, the ladies go to the tomb, and Jesus is speaking to one of the women, and this is what John 20, 17 says. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended, I have not yet gone to the Father, but I want you to go to my brothers, and I want you to say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father, and to my God, and your God. So it appears, according to the text, that when he died on the cross, and to your hands I commit my spirit, that he did not ascend to heaven. We know that he ascended in Acts 1 9 and following. This is when he went to heaven. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing up into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into the heaven. So listen, the text indicates from First Peter and from Jesus' words into your hands, I commit my spirit. His body was in the tomb, but his spirit went somewhere else. And we'll see in a moment the significance of that. So where did he go? Well, Verse 19 tells us he went to a prison. This word prison in the Greek has had much transformation over time. The original meaning of this word in the Greek meant to watch or to guard something. Over time, it had expanded meanings, uh, one of which was the act of keeping watch or to guard something. Then it became known as a watch post or a station then it became, a, uh, understanding, a place where anyone is watched or guarded as in a prison. So it's used in the New Testament in a number of different places. It's hinted at in a couple of other places. In Jude chapter 6 and 7, it speaks about gloomy chains of darkness where demons are being kept. Jude writes that. In Revelation chapter 20 verse 7, it speaks about... That there's one who descends and he opens up the bottomless shaft or this pit, this abyss where demons are being held. Peter writes about it in Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. And it speaks about over and over in these four specific places. And there's really kind of a fifth one that's hinted at. That there is a prison. Listen to me. There's a prison where certain demons have been put and they've been placed and they've been put in chains and they are never going to be released until the judgment. Now let me deal deal with you or talk with you about demons for a moment. There are originally the demons when they rebelled with Satan and they were cast from heaven and they came to earth, every demon was free to roam. But there became a group of demons... In the early part of the book of Genesis, who did something so evil and vile that God intervened and they were put in prison, not allowed to roam free anymore, but they were put there in chains to be kept until the final judgment. And we will talk about and look at those texts here in just a moment. Now, when we talk about prison here, I want to make sure that it's clear. Sometimes we use the phrase as humans, that person is in a prison of their own making or their own design. And it speaks of someone who maybe has an addiction of something and there's some kind of passion and they just are locked into the reality of the choices that they've made. That is not what we're talking about here. This word is a literal place that Peter is speaking of that describes a place where there are demons who are kept, who have done some pretty heinous things. Incredible things against the glory of God. So, look what right here. So, there is a specific place that Jesus went. The scripture affirms in four places a prison. Peter says that when he committed his spirit, he was put to death in the flesh. He was made alive. He was alive in the spirit, in which by the spirit he went to this place on a journey, and he went there. And he proclaimed something. Now think of this for a moment with me. Since Genesis 3 and the fall of man, Satan and the demonic have been trying to wreak havoc on the glory of God and people. When Jesus died on the cross, can you imagine what the demons locked away since Genesis thought to themselves? We're going to be free now. Our Lord, Satan has won the victory, Jesus is dead. And can you imagine them in these chains of gloomy darkness thinking they're going to be freed? And then Peter describes what happened in which he went into the prisons and proclaimed. As they're celebrating, guess who shows up to the party? Jesus does. And when he steps into this place, wherever this place is, He has a sermon to proclaim. Now I want to talk about this for a moment. Because some denominations under Christianity have falsely taught some things with this. Some people believe that Jesus went to where lost souls who didn't choose Him on earth were being kept. And He went into that place and He preached the gospel to them so that they could have a second chance at salvation. There is nowhere in Scripture that indicates that after life we get a second chance. Nowhere. Hebrews writes this. It is appointed once for man to die, and then what? Comes the judgment. So there's not a second chance after this life. You want to go to heaven? You want to be in a relationship with Christ? You have to choose Him now on this side. You don't get to choose on the other side. It's not what the Scripture teaches. There's no place where it teaches that. And so here in the text, Jesus shows up, and he has a message. The Greek word is not evangelism or preaching the gospel. The Greek word is caruso, and it was a word used in the ancient Greek where they would say this, where there would be somebody coming to town, and they would announce this to the townspeople. Hey, Life Point Town! Greek army has won a victory. The army is about to march through the city, gather the streets, and let's celebrate the victory that the army has won. That's the word that Peter uses here, caruso. So Jesus steps into this prison by his spirit, and he speaks to the demonic, and he proclaims a victory over them. I have won. I'm the victorious one. I'm the undefeated one. And he steps in and he proclaims this message to them. And this text here indicates two important things to see. And it's this one. One is this. There are no second chances for human beings. And there are no second chances for the demons. There's not. There's a great text in regard to this teaching in Luke chapter 16, for no second chances with humans. There's a parable Jesus gave. And listen to the parable. This is Luke chapter 16. It's a story about a guy named Lazarus and a rich man. In Luke sixteen twenty three, it says this, And in Hades, this rich man being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus, this poor man on earth, at his side. 24 says, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. It's fixed. Can't be bridged. Can't be anything once you step on to the other side. In order that those who would pass from here to you, they may not be able, and none may cross from where you are to us. And then the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, can you send Lazarus to my Father's house on earth? You see, I've got five brothers. And I'd like for him to warn them because I don't want them to come to this place of torment. And 29 says, but Abraham says, hey, listen, they've got Moses and the prophets. They've got the written word of God. That's enough for them to know that they need to repent. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone from the dead were to go to them and speak to them, then they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And Jesus died. He rose from the dead. And here we are 2,000 years later, and people say, no, he didn't do that. Jesus says the Scripture is enough to know that you need to repent. And so the text here suggests there are no second chances. And is that not tragic this morning? It's unbelievably tragic. That's why there's such this, should be this compulsion in us to share with people who don't know of him. And the second thing is simply this: is there's no second chance for demons. These demons that rebelled against the glory of God in heaven and came and were cast down to earth here and have wreaked havoc on the glory of God and messing up the church and messing up God's people and the destruction of families and the destruction of nations, they will have no second chance for this is what Jude 6 says and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority in the Greek that literally means this they were once in a highest position of angels but now they chose to walk away from that and they rebelled against God and this is what they left their proper dwelling in the script and Jude says and he has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment until the judgment of the great day. They are sitting there right now under these chains of gloomy darkness because of what they did. And the implication here is this, that judgment is assigned and is assured for the disobedient who reject Christ, but great glory and great hope comes the promise to those who are obedient to trust Christ. So watch what happens in the text. Being put to death in the flesh... But made alive in the Spirit, in the Spirit, in which, in the Spirit, He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And He proclaimed to them the sermon, I am the victorious one. So we have to ask the question, when did that happen? When did He make this proclamation? I think it's important, I think we we can deduce from the text when this takes place. Peter writes these words, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. If this was after the resurrection, then I think Peter would have wrote these words. Being put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the flesh. And that would indicate that this happened after the resurrection. So here's what I think happened. I think this is awesome. And again, throughout the centuries, people have viewed this differently. This is my viewpoint. I have the platform this morning, so I get to talk about my view. It's okay if you're wrong this morning. I don't have any problem with that. I, I think this is beautiful. He's on the cross. He's dead. His spirit remains alive. He goes on a journey to a place where demonic spirits have been put in prison back in Genesis. We'll see that here in a moment. And he stepped into the party and said, I'm alive. Well, I'm going to be alive. he, He proclaims victory. I'm the victorious one. And that's what he did from the cross by the time he came alive. Is that not beautiful and powerful? He is the victorious one. We have nothing to fear. And we can walk in the light of this great power and victory that He has brought. And now this becomes our great privilege to proclaim to the world victory. Again, I talk about it. The buoys are in the room here. They go into a place where people have been put in prison in their ministry and they proclaim the freedom that Christ comes. And though they are housed in a jail cell, there are people there, they can tell you, that are way more free than us who are on the outside. Because they get it that the proclamation of Jesus and the power of Jesus and salvation frees us. And it becomes our great joy now to talk about this. Nextly, let's talk about these. Nextly, is that even a word? But anyway, Next. He went and spoke to the spirits in prison. Let's talk about these spirits in prison, and I want to put all the text together so we can see it. So y'all ready for a little Bible drill? Hello. Okay, thank you. All right, First Peter three nineteen. Let's put them all together. Get my glasses back on here. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Go to Second Peter chapter two now. Go to your right. Verse four. <coughs> Peter twice in both of these epistles speaks about demons, chained demons in prison. He connects both of them with Noah. So there's something very significant in Genesis in Noah's generation. 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, this is a word tartarus in the Greek, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until... the The judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Go to Jude, keep going to your right. You'll find first John, second John, third John, and then you'll find Jude. Let's look at Jude six and seven, so we kind of put all this together, we'll see another reference in Jude seven to the book of Genesis. Jude 6 and 7. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now go to the right, to Revelation chapter 9. Verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fall from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. This word bottomless pit is the idea of a prison, a place of confinement. Same idea in the Greek. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth and they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And we'll just stop there. Those are the references for specific pictures that there is a demonic place where demons are kept for the day of judgment. Two interesting things connected to these demons that are spoken about here in this prison the first one is simply this is that they are in a confinement nobody can release them they have been put there by god and they are in a place of gloomy darkness the second secondly is this is according to peter and you got to look at both of the, these pictures with peter and then you look what jude says in jude 7 In the book of Genesis, there were some unbelievable evil things that took place, and particularly during the generation of Noah. So these angels were disobedient in the days of Noah, and they were put in this prison. Now this word here, some people would say um, this is a reference to maybe the generation of Noah who were very rebellious, because Genesis speaks about that, where he writes... Every human being on the face of the earth, in Genesis 6 says this, every inclination, every desire of people that were alive at that day, all they wanted to do was evil. So the people were really, really evil. And so some people have said, well, this is a message to the generation of Noah who were human beings. It's not really a, a message to to, um, to, demons. And I don't think that's the case because we've just read that. I think there's some specific things that are connected with it. This is not... Um, humans, we know from Genesis 6 2 that this took place. Let me just read this. This is Genesis 6 2. The sons of God, by the way, this phrase, the sons of God, in the Old Testament is used here in Genesis 6. It's also used in Job 1 and Job 2, and it's reference to the demonic. This is what it says Genesis 6 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came, listen to this, came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. And these children were, they became the mighty men who were of old. And these these ones that did this, the men of renown. And then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now let me just talk about this for a moment. We sometimes read the book of Genesis and we, I don't think we fully get the depth of the reality. It is likely, highly probable that there has never been a sin-filled earth, an earth that is more depraved than Noah's generation. Every, the Scripture says, every single person outside of eight people who end up being saved, every thought, every incarnation, every desire, all it was was evil against God. You come to Genesis 19 and 20, speaking about Sodom and Gomorrah, And there was such wickedness in regard to sexuality. Why so much? Again, Genesis 6 there indicates that somehow demons left their natural habitat, had sex with women, created this race of people. Genesis, we see this as well. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot is living there. Two angels come to town. Lot's at the gate. He sees them. He invites the angels to his house. The men of the city, it says, see that these angels have come. They look like men. They come to Lot's house. Knock on the door. Lot, neighbor, friend, we know you got two angels in there. We know there are men in there. Let them come out here because we'd like to have sex with them. The depravity in the book of Genesis is unbelievable And it's connected to sexuality. And as Peter uses this word, and as Jude uses the word, he uses the word porneia, which is the word fornication, sexual sin. So in the book of Genesis, somehow the demonic did something so heinous, they left their natural place, they had sex with women, created this group of people, who were men of renown. This doesn't mean that they were godly people. It just means they were powerful people, men of great reputation because of the might and who they are. And God comes to Noah's generation, and He's had it. He's had it with mankind, and He's had it with the demonic. And so He puts these demons in a prison because what they did was so heinous. So we have to ask the question, why did the demons do this? When Genesis chapter 3, verse 15... God comes to the garden after Adam and Eve have sinned and He speaks to Satan first and He says this, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours, and you will strike His heel, but He will crush your head. These words are not lost on Satan. He knows this, that from the womb of the woman is going to come one who will defeat him. So guess what Satan does in the early days? He tries to corrupt the reproduction of people and children because he knows God's word is true, that God is all truth, and there's going to come one, so he is going to try to attempt to thwart the bloodline and the coming of Jesus. And here we are in the year 2018, and rampant immorality fills the day because nothing destroys a family, nothing destroys a marriage, Nothing destroys integrity than sexual sin. And these demons were put there because of some kind of gross sexual sin. There's five main perspectives in all of this. I don't have time to go through all of them. Augustine, he believed about this text in First Peter that was only about Noah's generation. This was about the people who lived during that time. It was a communication to them that as Noah built the ark that there was a rejection of this John Calvin in his institutes and in, uh, his institutes 2 in verse in 169 uh, he says that Christ went to basically the netherworld and he preached the fullness of grace to the righteous dead and also to the disobedient dead he spoke a condemnation and i have an issue with Calvin's perspective of this because it it says that it doesn't say anywhere that he went and spoke to the faithful it says he went to speak to the disobedient. And so um, I, I think that interpretation can't be there. There's many liberal denominations and liberal people who believe that Christ went to Hades and he preached to people to give them a second chance so that they could come out. But I just don't believe that that's the case because Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for men to die once and after that becomes the judgment. So it's not a perspective. For the first four centuries of the church, this view that I put forth to you was the view of the church. It wasn't until about the fifth century that other things began to creep in to this understanding of what Peter writes here in 1 Peter three nineteen and 20. That tells me that there was a pretty firm understanding in the early church as to what this was referencing. So God puts these demons in prison who have gross sexual sin during that time. And he puts them there, and Christ goes, and he proclaims. All right, let's look at verse 20, because we've got to finish up. We're going to touch on this today, and we're going to come back to it next week and get into it a little bit deeper. So 1 Peter 3.20 says, Because they, again referring to these demons, formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was prepared, in which a few—that is, eight persons—were brought safely through water. And again, we're going to dive into this deeper next week. So let me just pause here. So Peter here, he gives another illustration. So we go. Watch this, Peter. Not like Paul. Okay, I'm going to put forth glory of Jesus in suffering. He's so good. Great victory has come to this. Let me illustrate it about demons in prison and about Noah building the ark. So let me illustrate this. And so we've seen the picture, and I'm going to tie it in together for us here in just a moment. Peter is using two illustrations to make the point as to why it is better to suffer for good than doing evil. What did the demonic angels do? They are suffering because they did what? They're doing evil. What did the generation of Noah who all died in the flood, what did they get because they rejected the message that Noah, they got evil, they got drowning, they got separation because they wouldn't listen to God's voice through Noah. And so again, he's using these illustrations to say this. You better listen to God. You better trust His plan of salvation and not... Just think that you can ignore him and everything's going to be okay. That is not the case. And so I, I, I have more time in this service here. I'm going to make six applications and I promise they'll be brief. They'll be brief. And the first application is why does Peter use this illustration about the demonic and why does he use this illustration about Noah? And the first one is simply this Christ has won the victory that's the first application and as his people the world can rage against us our beliefs the world can rage against christ we stand firm on this reality christ has won the victory and so we stand in no place else we stand in the truth of this he's won the victory in which he went 319 and proclaimed to the spirits in prison And then he, at the end, through the resurrection of Jesus, and to prove he's won the victory, 22, we'll look at this next week, maybe, hopefully, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. He ascended, he sat, indicating finished work, and then it says angels and authorities and spirits and powers, they have all been subjected to him. He is the ruler. He is the victorious one. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 2.14, thanks be to God, for in Christ, he always, not sometimes, he always leads us in the triumphal procession because of what Christ has done. So we walk in the great victory that has come. So the saints and the sacredness of saving faith is Noah's family was saved, they were rescued, they were rescued because of their faith in God and the truth of God's word because Christ has won the victory. And secondly, it's this, obedience matters to God. It matters to God. The angels were bound in prison in gloomy darkness and Noah's generation, ev- listen to that, every single person on planet earth in Noah's generation died except for his family. God takes obedience to him in the glory of his name and his word very very serious connected with that is third application god deals with sin drastically he dealt with drastically with the demonic and he dealt drastically with noah's generation and you want to see how drastically god deals with sin listen to me folks Just look at that symbol. Sin is so evil and so awful, any word you want to put, that God had to send the eternal Son, second person of the Trinity, to bear our sins in His body so that you and I could have the hope of a relationship with them and the hope of heaven. Sin is such a big deal that it cost Jesus his life as it became the sacrifice. And Peter uses this illustration about the demons being put into the abyss awaiting judgment in Noah's generation he uses to show that God always deals with unbelief and disobedience. Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 24 36 through 39 says this that the end times will be like Noah's day but there won't be a judgment of water, there's going to be a judgment of what? Fire. Because he's going, to, he's going to rid the earth. He's going to rid this place. Because it's marked by a hatred of His glory. And He's going to create a new heaven. He's going to create a new earth that you and I will live in forever. Fourth, He says here, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, God is amazingly patient. You know how long Noah preached? 120 years took him to build the ark. And for 120 years he preached. You know how many converts he had? This many, zero, or I guess you could call seven in his family. You talk about a hard generation to do ministry in? Genesis 6. No converts hey, why are you building that ark? Uh, God's going to bring a flood. He's going to judge the earth. (laughs) Whatever. My inclination in my heart is I'm going to continue to rebel against God and I'm going to do my own thing. Don't do that. Come to God. I'm building this ark. You can join. You can get in the ark. It's going to be our protection. It's going to be our salvation. The ark was a picture of Jesus, one of the earliest pictures of Jesus. Get in with Jesus. And when God closed the door, he provided salvation for Noah and his family. God is amazingly patient. It's 2018. I've joked about this before. You remember when the the world was going to end with Y2K and it was just, oh my gosh, how are we going to survive that? Here we are 18 years later and God's been 18 years more patient with some of us who don't know Him. Unbelievable patience of God. Fifthly, God has always spoken to every generation and had a remnant. So Peter uses the illustration in which a few, that is eight persons. Eight people survived Noah's generation. And let's remember that Peter is writing to a group of persecuted believers who could relate to Noah's circumstances. Both were a righteous minority living in the midst of a sinful world. Both Noah... Peter's listeners were surrounded by hostile unbelievers. With Noah, judgment was coming. It came after the 120-year mark. Peter's readers were awaiting God's judgment that was soon to come. Noah witnessed boldly in his generation. Peter's been calling these in chapter 2 and 3 for us to do good and to proclaim so that by doing God's will, we should put to the silence of the ignorance of foolish people. And Noah and his family were saved. And Peter's letting the people know, just as Noah's family was saved, you will be saved by trusting in Jesus regardless of the culture and their perspective of Jesus. Lastly, (coughs) Christ is the rescuer. That's the application. They were brought safely through water. The ark represented Jesus. Christ is the one who rescues us in the text in First Peter and Second Peter, speak of the ministry of Christ in the life of Noah, as he spoke to the rebellious people before the flood, Noah was said to be a preacher of righteousness, proclaiming salvation in God. That's what Peter means. Is that all clear to you this morning? Got that? It's pretty cool illustrations. You got to dig deeper sometimes. Just first glance, you're just like going, forward. "What is it?" So let me remind us this morning. We're going to stand and sing here in a moment. I've got great hope. If you know Jesus today, we do not walk in defeat, and it's not grounded in anything that we can do. Our righteousness is filthy. Even so, what do we need? We need someone. To become the substitute to, uh, for us. So that through faith in Him, we get covered with His righteousness so that we can boldly come in. We need clothing to come in. And the Father sees that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness and so we boldly come in and proclaim the victory and the greatness of Jesus. And so the demonic had been defeated. There's nothing to be feared Don't be troubled. We can be rescued through faith in Jesus, but you got to come to Jesus. You got to trust in Jesus. It is not our works, it is not baptism, it is not water, it is not church attendance. It is the substitutionary death on the cross. For he himself bore in his body our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, First Peter two twenty four says, you have been healed. Come to him. I'm gonna be standing at the back. If you've not ever come to Christ, let today be the day of salvation. Or if you've come with somebody and you know they know the Lord, grab them and say, hey, can we talk about it? I wanna know. I wanna give up trying to earn salvation and I wanna trust on what has already been done what Christ has done for me. I want to trust in that. I'll talk to you about that. Somebody that you know in here may talk to you, would would love to talk with you about that. But let's get that settled today if it needs to get settled. The rest of us, let's stand and sing about that one who's undefeated. Every match, he's won. He has defeated the enemy. Let's pray.